1: grace that
2: Jesus returned from being baptized by John the Baptist and in the power of the Spirit he went into Galilee and began to preach in their synagogues and heal the sick. Very quickly, there was a great deal of excitement about this new teacher. He had been raised in Nazareth, and so he returned home to Nazareth in Luke, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 16. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now they had heard about this wonderful work this man was doing, but they also all knew him. He grew up in that synagogue. Now they hand him the scroll to honor him. And he opens the scroll and he finds the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because of which he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to restore the ones having been broken in heart, to proclaim deliverance for the captives and recovery of the sight for the blind, to send forth the ones having been downtrodden with deliverance, to proclaim the accepted year of the Lord, Then he rolled the scroll back up, handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and every eye was on him. There was not a sound in the house. And he spoke these words Today, this scripture stands fulfilled in your ears. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio is my wife Alexandra.
3: Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. This passage we also find, this is from the um, Common English Bible translation, Luke 4:18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's interesting about this is, as Luke records it, this is the first sermon we see Jesus give, and he still at this, at this point has not called any disciples. So Jesus was already doing these things he just named. He was healing. He was preaching the gospel to the poor. He was teaching. We see him casting out demons before he actually calls for disciples. Now this is a challenge to us as we have very much kind of rushed the gun on calling for disciples and neglected pretty much everything else that Jesus said he came to do. Are we preaching good news to the poor? Are we proclaiming release to prisoners, either literal prisoners or prisoners of sin? Are we able to heal the blind? Are we able to liberate those who are oppressed? Or are we just jumping to trying to make disciples? and missing the real mission of Jesus.
2: It's very clear that Luke, as he writes this story, gives us the mission statement for Jesus. And that mission statement, I want to enlarge a little bit for you. He has sent me to restore the ones having been broken in heart, to proclaim deliverance for the captives. That word captive in the Greek is made up of two words. First, spear point. And second, it is combined with a word that means captivity. You cannot escape. So literally, a spear point at your back that is forcing you to do what you don't want to do and go where you don't want to go. You are not free. You are a captive. You are in bondage. And I suspect that that describes many people, Alexander, who are listening to this broadcast. Held captive by a job you hate. Held captive by sin that you hate held captive by a financial situation that you are desperate about, held captive emotionally in relationships that you don't know how to deal with. The promise of Jesus, for which he came, was to remove the spear point from your back to deliver you. And in the midst of that, To restore you to set you free this is Jesus mission statement
3: yes and so we see that Jesus came to make us completely free in every area I know for example one man who needs to be free because right now he works and when he gets home he has to hand over everything he's made to his girlfriend who has refused to marry him. And he only gets to keep whatever she decides she's going to give him. And he doesn't see any way out of this situation. There's many things like this, and it's not Jesus's desire for us to continue living in these oppressive relationships. He says he came to liberate the oppressed.
2: Now we've been inviting you to come to a House Fellowship. The National Prayer Chapel right now is a House Fellowship. It meets in our home. I don't want to give you the address on the air because of security problems, but I do want to give you a phone number. And if you would like to come, if you need deliverance, if you need to be set free, if you need to be prayed for, and you know you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The service basically is sharing with one another scripture and song and praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you need a new place, if you need to be prayed for, if you're eager to experience the freedom of worshiping God without all the denominational trappings and all of the church stuff, then I'm going to give you a phone number. Call, and I'll be happy to talk with you. The phone number is 703-489-1785. That number again, 703 489 1785. Now, we've been talking about an incredible story, an Axe story in the modern day. And we've been reading this incredible book. Why don't you introduce it for us today, Alexandra?
3: We're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. She arrived in Hong Kong in 1966 and is still there. She has expanded her ministry. It's wonderful. The converts, they very quickly step into service because when they're converted, she prays for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit right away. So they are immediately empowered for service, even though they are still young and immature in the faith. And so these young men and women who've been saved have gone to the Philippines, have gone to Thailand, have gone to other countries in Asia and continued the work.
2: And the most amazing part is that when they are converted, when they come to Jesus, because they want to be free from drugs, from heroin, or from other drugs, they're still drug addicts and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then they are delivered through the withdrawal process with no pain, with no medications, no cigarettes, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jackie Pullinger was in this walled city of Hong Kong, the darkest of the dark places in the world for two to three years, struggling, working, getting nowhere. We're going to share that today with you.
3: Jackie Pullinger writes, Sometimes I think that Chanwo Wo Sai was the real reason why I started the youth club. He was a most unattractive 15-year-old with about as many problems in life as anyone could have, personal problems, educational problems, home problems, background problems, and no prospects at all. I first got to know him when I was teaching English and singing on one of my three afternoons a week at Oiwa Primary School. I was teaching the children ten green bottles, a less sexy song I can hardly think of, yet there was Chan Wo Sai getting really sent by a traditional English nursery rhyme in a language he could not speak. Chan Wo Sai was rolling his eyes and clicking his fingers. Then he got up and began to slide across the classroom toward me in a sexy, hip-thrusting motion, like a bad Chinese movie actor. I hurriedly ordered him back to his place and changed to another song. As soon as class ended, I went to find out where he came from. The story was both simple and sad. Chen Wosai was born in the walled city. His mother was a prostitute and his father a drunkard. They lived in a sort of cockloft. To find him I had to go down the narrow passage where the prostitutes were living along the main street where the older woman pimps spent all day waiting and then left at the Blue Film Theater and down a very muddy path to a collapsed building. Here, beyond a heap of stones, he lived with his whole family in half of a room that had been added on to another building. The walls were crumbling off. There were more prostitutes next door. He'd known about them for as long as he could remember. He was in no way shocked by them. They were just part of his life. Indeed, he thought their activities were very funny. His horizons were limited to the brothel next door, the gambling dens down the road, and the opium dens beyond. There was nowhere in the walled city where you could go and do anything neutral, let alone take part in constructive activity. So I tried to get to know him to help him with his problems. This was difficult because I could hardly speak a word of Cantonese. All I had managed to learn so far were a few sentences. I could say, good morning, and have you eaten yet? But that was about all. And to make life still more difficult, Chan Sai had a speech impediment, which made conversation hard even for fluent Cantonese speakers. Our great point of contact was the drum pad I gave him. It is a sheet of rubber stuck on a wooden board on which you can practice, with drumsticks, making a noiseless drum. The drum pad provided the perfect excuse for going to see him regularly. He was supposed to practice with it, but he seldom did, and in any case he had the most hopeless sense of rhythm. But he was pleased to find that someone was interested in him. This was the first time in his life that anyone had shown care for him. As time went on, I found myself constantly thinking about him, which alarmed me. My English mind had been trained to think that love for a boy must be romantic, and because I was a Christian, that sort of love would eventually lead to marriage. Yet that, of course, was impossible and ridiculous. My mind told me that he was a very ugly boy with a hopeless background. But I really did love him, and I prayed for him continually. I got to the point where I could quite seriously and willingly have given my life for him. After some time, I was able to understand and was surprised by what I saw in myself. It was as if God had given me a special love for him and that I was meant to show it, although it was not necessarily an emotion that should or could be returned. This love was for his good. It was quite different from any love for other people that I'd had before, in which I had always wanted something in return. I'd never before loved somebody entirely for his benefit, without caring what he felt for me. So it was really for Chan sai that I opened a club just for young people. Of the various groups of people in need in the Walled City, none were worse catered to than the young teenagers. At least the younger children had the chance to go to primary school and most Chinese parents, no matter how poor, encouraged this. But the young teenagers had nothing. Getting into secondary school was almost impossible for a walled city boy, even if his parents could afford it, which was unlikely. So teenagers often found work in the sweated-labor plastic factories where the hours were unlimited and the pay pitiful. Then, disheartened by the life of ceaseless work, they dropped out. Many boys, and sometimes girls, left home to find shelter in some one-room hovel where lots of others, all following the same path, slept. Soon, with nothing to do, they drifted into crime. The triad gangs often provided the only other employment available. My involvement with Chan Wosai grew grew during the summer of 1967, when all of China was thrown into confusion by the activities of the Red Guards. This is during the Cultural Revolution started by Mao. The fever crossed the border into Hong Kong. Trouble was skillfully stirred by local agitators. Knowing nothing about politics, I remained blissfully unaware of what was going on, although there were riots all over the colony. I did discover, however, that some of the walled city boys were being paid to pick up stones and throw them. I felt that they could just as easily be persuaded to come to a picnic. So one hot, humid day in June, I said to Auntie Donnie, rather pompously, I think the Lord would have me start a youth club. I had visions of a hand-picked team of handsome helpers from Hong Kong, Island, who would sweep in with a beautifully organized program while I sat back and applauded. I envisioned a room open evenings and weekends. It would be a place where young people could play table tennis and take part in all the other normal activities available to boys and girls in a big city. It equally could be a place where they would hear about Jesus. I imagined committee discussions, prayer meetings, program planning, and further discussion. Auntie Donnie was more practical. Good, I've been praying for that for years, she said. When do you start? Next week? So we started one week later. I had not yet put together my handpicked team, and we did not have anywhere to meet but I soon borrowed a room from the school on Saturday afternoons. Gordon Su, a young Chinese man I had met at the youth orchestra, became a tower of strength and an invaluable translator. He was also realistic. Unlike some of the Chinese leaders who expected a youth club to be a sort of extended Bible lecture, Gordon helped us hire coaches, came on picnics, and went roller skating with us. Soon school ended and none of the pupils had much to do. The prospect of the boys being caught up in the riots stimulated me to develop the activities further. Saturday afternoons grew into a complete summer program with organized picnics, hikes, and visits to the forestry plantations. What started that summer became a regular program that happened every July and August for some years after. The first to come to the youth club were the 13- and 14-year-olds. They began to bring friends from outside. Everyone knew from the beginning that I was there because I was a Christian, and that events would start or end with a short talk. They did not like the Jesus bit at all. For them, anything to do with Christianity was either full of prohibition or middle class. They had no idea who Jesus really was. Worse, they believed that if you could not read, you could not be a Christian, because to them, being a Christian was something to do with the big book. Some young people told me that they could not come to the youth club. We smoke and we drink, they said. We go to films and we gamble. And we know Christians don't do any of those things. It soon became clear that the blocks to belief were often the result of a culture gap which local Chinese Christians did nothing to overcome. All too soon, Chan Wo dropped out of school. At 15, he was one of the oldest boys in primary fourth form, and he was at least four years behind. He decided not to finish that year of schooling. A new blue film theater had just opened in the walled city, and he got a job selling the tickets.
2: Just so that we're clear, a blue film theater is a film of pornography. To the inexperienced teacher from England, dropping out of primary school seemed to be a terrible thing to do. I spent all summer trying to persuade the hostile boy to go back. Eventually, he humbled himself and went to see his teachers, but they refused to take him. Their explanation horrified me. One said, Well, Jackie, we were only too pleased when he left because we could not control him. He upset not only the teachers, but also the whole of the class. Good riddance to him. Theirs was a mission school, not a profit oriented private academy. These were Christian teachers, and I had imagined that when they met once a week for a prayer meeting, they prayed for the difficult and troublesome boys. But the truth was that most of the teachers had barely completed secondary school themselves, and that they had said they were Christians in order to get the job, and were incapable of handling anything under other than an entirely docile class. For chan wa his departure was effectively the end of his education. He could not go to another school without retaking the primary four exam. The only alternative was to find him a vocational training school that would teach him some skill. However, he proved ineligible for such courses, either because he was too old or because he had not completed primary school and could not speak English. Together we trudged around schools and factories, seeking further training or an apprenticeship, and in every case we were turned away. The gates were closed against him, even though he was only fifteen years old. What had happened to him? He had dropped out of school, and selling tickets at the Blue Film Theater was as far as he was ever going to go. There was nothing I could do for him except keep this club going. Several of his dropout friends joined the gangs. They discovered that they had a role. If they proved themselves, they were given respect and responsibility. They were given a rank and treated as people of importance. And in the gangs, they found a degree of care and consideration and closeness that they certainly found nowhere else, in school and church and Success in exams was equated with righteousness. Be a good boy. Don't go around with bad people, but study hard and pass your exams. The school had said it. The church had said it. Their parents had said it. And for the boys, it was terribly boring to be told the same thing again and again, and they hated hearing it. The gangs in my club were the only place where they did not hear the sentence of failure and rejection the youth club was indeed unlike any other activity organized in the walled city nobody made any money out of it no gangsters controlled it and years later they even sent guards to protect it from those who wanted to smash the place up the club went through various addresses but inside it was always the same a bare room with some game equipment like table tennis and darts crude benches, a bookshelf with Christian books bought by me, which no one could read. Nicholas was another boy I got to know very well during this time. Both his father and mother had been on charges for selling drugs, and the whole family lived in one of the nastiest houses I've ever seen. Half of it was literally a pigsty, for their neighbors kept pigs below— the two eldest girls were prostitutes, and there always seemed to be lots of babies around. I never did find out which baby belonged to which mother. Some were Nicholas's brothers and sisters, others his nephews and nieces. They all lived in a room the size of a a broom cupboard that stank. The church members resented Nicholas because, like chan woo He was such a bad influence in the school, so of course they knew about the bar girl sisters, and the father was a hopeless opium addict. In their eyes, the fact that I was welcoming Nicholas to our club gave the Christian church a bad name. I should not even be seen with him. I knew what Nicholas was like. He was vile and always a pain. He had triad connections and right from the beginning and later graduated to become a heroin addict and necessarily a pusher. But I loved him, even if unreasonably, for Jesus had come into the world for him, which was also unreasonable. So I made a point of befriending him. I visited him at home all hours of the day for weeks and months and years, I was terribly concerned about him and grieved for him, perhaps more deeply than for any other person over the years. I found him in drug dens. I went to him when he was arrested. I prayed with him in the police station and in the prison before his trial. I helped him with his trial, but none of my efforts changed him. I learned that any sense of righteousness was lacking in that place of utter darkness crime dishonesty corruption were considered right as long as they paid but this attitude did not stop its supporters from adopting a cliche loaded morality in my presence they felt it was correct as I represented the church and the establishment
3: "'Isn't he a bad boy?' Nicholas's mother would say to me in front of him. "'Miss Pullinger, you must teach him a good way and take him to your church and the youth club.' "'It was nauseous prating, and I hated it.' "'Then she would moan, "'Can't understand why my children are bad. I had them baptized and sent them to church.' This from a woman who measured grains of white powder into little packets for sale to junkies. Later on, one of the younger sisters, Annie, also became a bar girl. Then, incredibly, she scored the ultimate by making a wonderful marriage. Her husband was a collector of rake-off money for the police. Annie was ever so pleased about marrying him because he had his own private car. Annie's mother was delighted, too, although the nightclubs, ballrooms, and brothels, owned and run by the son-in-law's family, were only low class, at least they were successful. One day, as I was walking down the street, an old man ran up to me. He was an opium den owner, an important man in the walled city. He had the skeleton face of an opium addict with grey-tinged hollow cheeks from a lifetime of taking the sweet stuff. He was beside himself with rage. "'Miss Poon,' he cried, "'you must complain to the police.' "'Why should I complain?' I asked him. "'They've closed all the opium dens.' He was outraged and indignant. "'I'm delighted the police have closed the opium dens,' I replied. "'Why do you want me to complain?' "'Because they've let the heroin den stay open, "'and we've all paid them the same money. "'It's not fair.' "'No right and wrong, just fair and unfair.' "'A young man named Joseph "'was one of the earliest youth club presidents. "'Unlike Nicholas and chan "'he had no overt connections with Vice.' His father had remarried when he was six, and his new wife did not like her stepchildren, so she did not feed them. Joseph and his sister Jenny were sent out to beg with plastic bowls or to grub through a rubbish heap for food. They were rescued by a pastor in the New Territories and sent to Mrs. Donathorn's mission school. Having finished primary school, Joseph got himself a room and worked as a coolie whenever he could his sister soon joined him there. Characters such as Nicholas would drop in on him and stay the night, and his room became a breeding ground for gangsters. His sister Jenny, however, was in moral danger. At 15, she was very pretty and reveled in release from her highly supervised Christian hostel. Now she could talk all night with her brother's friends or go out with them. She was not at school and it was great fun. I thought that if she remained in Joseph's room, there was only one way she could go. I could not offer them both a home, as I was already sharing my Hong Kong room with another Walled City girl, Rachel, but I thought I could squeeze Jenny in, so I bullied her out of the Walled City to live with me. I found her a secondary school and bought the uniform, the books, and the lunches. She was not grateful. She wanted to be back in the Walled City, and she caused many headaches during the next year that she lived with us. One of our regular attendees, Christopher, lived in the Walled City in a house that could only be described as a loft. To find it, you had to walk down a narrow street where no light penetrated. The houses were built so close to each other that it was like going down a tunnel. When you reached a couple of hen coops made from soft drink crates, you had found their home. It was very, very smelly. Beside the coops and up some wooden ladders, you reached the living level. You had to open Christopher's door from underneath, exactly like a trap door. There was just one room over the chickens. Should it catch on fire, everyone would be burned to death. Escape was impossible except by lifting the door and going down the wooden ladder. The family sleeping quarters were behind a curtain. There you found a pair of wooden bunk beds, one on top of the other. Everyone slept in these two beds, everyone being six brothers and sisters, plus parents. The rest of the single room was taken up with huge piles of plastic objects, which Christopher's mother assembled. She earned about one Hong Kong dollar a day for this work. All the children had to help her assemble these plastic parts. They began working as soon as they were three or four years old. Christopher's younger sister did not finish primary school. She was sent to work in a factory as soon as she was 13. She was badly paid for the sweated labor and every dollar and cent she earned had to be given to her mother she was not allowed to keep anything for herself. Although already exhausted by a 10 or 12 hour day and a crowded bus journey, when she eventually returned home, she had as many as four more hours of work ahead of her sewing on sequins. One sweater would take her up to a week to complete. When finished, it would bring another $3 in wages, all of which would be kept by her mother."
2: When Christopher went to work, all of his money went to his mother, too. It was an unwritten law in Chinese families that the parents were paid back by their offspring for supporting them. Their ambition was to retire and live off their children. Christopher's mother used to say, I bore you, I brought you up, and I sent you to school. I paid out everything for you. Now you children should be paying me back for having had you. The Chinese children I knew found the process of starting work very depressing, as it meant they entered into a lifetime of debt. They got no pride from their paycheck because they never saw any of it. Their parents got the lot. Christopher's mother saved all this money and later on bought herself a flat outside of the walled city. The reason why so many Chinese families are large is an economic one parents have far bigger families than they can afford to maintain so that they will be rich in their old age. It seemed to me that family love and solidarity was based not so much on mutual love and respect as on economic advantage. Christopher's younger sister finally rebelled at such exploitation. She met a boy at her factory who liked her. But her mother forbade her to go out with him. She was not allowed to come to the youth club either because our program was mostly recreational. We had provided, had we provided sewing lessons or English classes, it would have been permitted, but enjoyment, pure and simple, was to be no part of her life. Instead, the girl's task was to stay at home, look after the babies, and assemble plastic parts or carry water. Eventually, the drudgery became too much, and she left home at age 14 and went to live with the boy. Her mother recaptured her, locked her up at home, saying that she was a bad girl and brought shame on the family, but also was considered an attack on the family earnings. And her mother continued to refuse to let her go anywhere outside of the home, so treated like chattel, it was not surprising that many girls made the jump into prostitution rather than remaining imprisoned at home. My mission was to help the walled city people to understand that Jesus, who he was. If they could not understand the words about Jesus, then we Christians were too slow or were to show them what he was like by the way we lived. I remember he had said, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. So, this was the beginning of what I called walking the extra mile. There seemed to be a lot of Christians who did not mind walking one mile, not many who could be bothered to walk two, and no one who wanted to walk three. Those in need that I met seemed to need a marathon. I became even more involved with the boys and their families and their problems. It meant walking with them in a practical way so that they could see and know who Jesus was. One example of this was when one of the boys asked me to help his sister get into secondary school. The usual process was to queue up for a day merely to obtain an admission form to take the entrance examination. If the school was Protestant and discovered that the applicant had studied in a Catholic primary school, he or she would not get a form, and the queuing would begin at another school. The boy's family thought that the way I would help would be by going to the headmistress and saying, Look, I'm so-and-so, and and I know so-and-so. Can you get this girl in? I did it the opposite way around and queued up for the whole day with the ordinary people, which surprised them, as this was not at all their idea of how I was supposed to help. Oftentimes, there were problems regarding identity cards, as many who lived in the walled city had not registered at birth. They thought that I could have a word with the authorities and a card would be issued. Instead, if asked to help, I would go with them and sit all day at the government office to help them make the correct application. I had to do all this during the holidays, because by now I was teaching music full-time at an Anglo-Chinese girls' college, St. Stephen's. For several years, I had many followers who reckoned that if they hung around for long enough, They might get a baptism certificate or a document that would enable them to go to America. They were real rice Christians. Perhaps they could get an introduction to a priest who needed someone to clean in a convent, or they could grab any of the side perks they thought they could get from a church. They began to treat me as they treated other missionaries. They thought I was a pushover. They were careless with my property and equipment and were continually asking to borrow money. They simply did not believe me when I told them that I didn't have any money. The conversations were always the same. They went like this. "Poonsai, I haven't got a job. I've run out of money. Well, I'm afraid I haven't got any money. Oh, but you must have. You're terribly rich no no really i haven't got any money oh yes you have because you've got a church in america like the rest of them no really i haven't got a church in america actually i came from england but no church sent me at this point another jumbo jet would launch low across the rooftops as it came to land at the airport which was close to the walled city Indeed, the walled city must have been directly under the flight path because in the summer months the tourist-filled jets came over every couple of minutes making conversations impossible as they thundered overhead. The plane noise would die away and our conversation would continue. Ha, one day I expect you'll get into one of those and fly back to where you came from. No, there's no danger of that. I would reply, honestly, because I haven't got enough money to get in one. Well, your parents can send you the money anyway. There's plenty of money where you came from. We've seen how those English people all live it up. No, I said, you're wrong about that. My parents haven't got any money either. There would be a pause, and then Ah ping would join the conversation. Ah ping thought more than the others. His remarks were always more to the point more understanding and more desperate. Well, maybe you haven't got any money now, but you can always get it from here so you can get away. We can't. There's nowhere else for us to go. We're stuck on the edge of the sea and only escape is into it. But you Westerners, you can fly away when you want to, and then you can forget all about us. No opinion. I'm not planning to fly away and forget about you. Ah Ping could really talk when he got warmed up. I respected his honesty for a few Chinese ever tell Westerners what they really feel about them. You Westerners, you come here and you tell us about Jesus. You can stay for a year or two years and your conscience will feel good and then you can go away. Your Jesus will call you to other work back home. It's true that some of you can raise a lot of money on behalf of us underprivileged people, but you'll still be living in your nice houses with your refrigerators and your servants, and we'll still be living here. What you're doing really has nothing to do with us. You'll go home anyhow, sooner or later. This kind of conversation took place many times. It was an indictment of the evangelists who flew into Hong Kong, sang sweet songs about the love of Jesus on stage and on Hong Kong television, and then jumped back into their planes and flew away again. Fine, said Ha-Ping to me savagely one day. Fine for them. Fine for us, too. We wouldn't mind believing in Jesus, too, if we could get into a plane and fly away around the world like them. They can sing about love very nicely. But what do they know about us? They don't touch us. They know nothing. Sometimes I tried talking to the men who guarded the gambling dens. But when I told them that Jesus loved them, they just nodded, Yeah, yeah, how nice. That means nothing to us. And, of course, it did not mean anything to them, as most of them had no idea who Jesus was or what love was. I went on, preach, preach, preach about how Jesus could give them a new life. But no one seemed to understand. Jesus did not promise running shoes in the hereafter to the lame man. He made him walk. He not only preached, but he also demonstrated that he was God. He made blind men see, deaf men hear, and dead men return to life. Some Christians claim that these things still happened. I needed to find them. My missionary friends could not help me much. Most of them were well over 40. Many had spent their lives in China and now felt lost. They did not expect the people to be converted, and they explained this by saying that there was a spiritual cloud hanging over China that covered Hong Kong, too. Some missionaries had all sorts of cultural hang-ups that infected me, until I found myself worrying over such a question as to whether I should wear sleeveless summer dresses and whether it was wrong to go bathing on Sundays— I got in the ridiculous, ridiculous situation where I was more concerned to please these missionary friends than to find out what God wanted me to do. I did not belong to any missionary society. I wasn't sponsored by any group at home and in reality had all the freedom anyone could want. Yet I was feeling bound and ineffective. We're sharing Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. She is alive and continuing the ministry today. The story in Hong Kong, the darkest place on earth in that walled city of utter brokenness, vile sin. And now for about three years, she's been struggling there, trying for a breakthrough, and absolutely no one, is converted to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've heard it, Alexandra, but I've heard it many times. There's a dark demonic cloud hanging over Washington, D.C., and that's why Christians can't make any progress here. And I've certainly struggled in Washington, D.C. for many years. I've been in this city for more than 40 years in ministry. I have refused to do the missionary thing, the traditional church, the social club church, and I still refuse to do it. And I need what she's saying she needs. I need the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. We, who call ourselves Christians, cannot be content without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you speak in tongues, that's awesome. But speaking in tongues is just a tool to be used for the salvation of the lost, not for some ecstatic religious experience. I want you to know the real Jesus of Scripture. And I want you to come to Jesus and be baptized in Pentecost power. I want you, yes, to repent of your sin. I want you, yes, to walk in righteousness. Innocence before God? Not a sinning Christian. There's no such thing that's an oxymoron. And I want you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, we're out of time for today.
3: You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, where Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel We've been reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Tamara will dive in to how she received this baptism of the Holy Spirit and how her ministry radically changed as suddenly these boys who she had spent years literally walking through hell with, without having them converted, how they suddenly began to come to Jesus. You can listen to this message again at NationalPrayerChapel.com. That's NationalPrayerChapel.com. And you can also write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195.
2: And if your heart is to be baptized in Pentecost power, and you need to be released and set free from the spear point at your back as we shared at the opening of the broadcast. Then call us, 703-489-1785. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon.
1: you blameless Before the presence of His glory Sure.